Hey everybody, how's it going this evening? Welcome into episode 11, that is 1-1 of the Fused Relativity Podcast. Chris here, and we've got John. How's it going tonight? Good evening, everyone. Uh, so we had a last minute scratch tonight. Um, <clears throat> Kirk is a little bit under the weather. He was trying real hard to uh, show up, but just wasn't in the cards tonight so me and john are going to tackle this episode of mono imano and we will see uh probably change things up a little bit just kind of maybe talk about what we're interested in this week um just a little back and forth it'll be a little different but we're going to make it work on the fly john how do you feel about that oh that sounds good and unfortunately, yeah, this may be a little bit shorter of a shorter of an episode this week, but we're hoping Kirk is feeling a little bit better later on. Yeah, well, you know, sometimes you just have to do what you gotta do if you're, uh, you know, puking or whatever. Kind of hard to do a podcast. Yeah, I work in medical, so I I'm. Well aware. People get sick. It happens all the time. Unfortunately for the people who get sick, of course. Yes. Um, so let's uh, kind of start the show with uh, what I originally wanted to start the show with, which is uh, 3D printing. We haven't talked about too much in the last couple of weeks because we've been talking so much about automation and and robotics and i found an interesting story about a local denver business who is doing metal additive 3d printing which essentially they're 3d printing with metal and they've actually been contracted to make submarines for the navy so spaceships for underwater pretty much <laughs> No, I've been, um, uh, I was going to say, I've been looking into uh, additive metal printing for a while. And, because uh, there's a lot of cool stuff you can do with it. Mostly, I was looking to uh, make jewelry. Uh, a, for my wife. B, for my wife to kind of sell. Because we kind of like the the unique jewelry aspect of things. Well, the uh, I was reading into it, and it's kind of a, basically, it's essentially like metal welding in what we understand as an FDM process. And so it, it's making layers of everything. It's just using hot metal to do it rather than uh, plastic like we use. Well, And there's, there's a lot of uses for it. Um, and clearly we don't know what those uses are, what the potential is, but I mean, they're talking about making submarines, which is, you know, you got to make sure that those things are airtight. Yeah. Well, and I was going to say there's other ways to do it from my research. There's two ways to 3d print metal. There's the one you're talking about where it's the FDM tile, where they use molten metal and go about in layers, just like, you know, our plastic printers do. Their other type it uses lasers to basically it, it has a uh, not a sand but a metal powder that's over the bed and it lasers the line and then it scoops more powder on top and then it does the next layer with the laser. Yeah, so lasers and 3D printing, that's a pretty cool combo. Yes, I would agree. <laughs> um, as I was looking into the what they were doing with the submarines, one of the reasons that they <clears throat> kind of chose that as their, you know, method of making these things was because they could create them specifically with a three D model of how they wanted to, you know, make this submarine, and it was easily changeable because then they can just go in and change the model and it's a pretty intuitive process that 
seems like where they might go with, uh, you know, a lot of other things. Well, it's I would assume it's a very similar process to what in ingenuity space, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Relativity space. Relativity space. Um, I would assume it's a very similar way that they're 3D manufacturing their rockets. I mean, like I joked earlier, a submarine is just a spaceship for water. And they essentially hold the same thing. It's to keep pressure inside the vehicle and keep everything that's out of it from getting in. Like water or, you know, the vacuum of space. Um, both things that you don't want inside your spaceship or submarine. Not usually, no. But, you know, if you think about it, they share a lot of similarities. Um, I've been watching a series by a YouTube channel called Smarter Every Day, where he spent some time on uh, a submarine that was doing research in the Arctic Ocean. Was it the Arctic or the... I don't remember now. But uh, a lot of the stuff and technology that is useful in a submarine is also applicable to spaceships. Because you have carbon dioxide scrubbers, you have water generation, although it's a lot easier to generate water under the ocean than in space. But they still have the recycling of water, they have the recycling of everything, and it's very applicable to, say, a spaceship that's going to mars well and then <clears throat> under those pretenses wouldn't you think that you know if they're good if the navy is giving this company the trust to build them submarines it kind of lends a little bit more towards the uh model that you could 3d print a rocket and a, have it be a viable you know piece of transportation Yes, but here's – so I don't know how much you want to delve into this topic, but um, since I've already mentioned going to Mars, we already have a spaceship that is kind of already – well, it's being flight tested right now, and that's Starship. And that is designed to go to Mars. Now, yes, you could print – 3D print something small like a Dragon capsule – uh, to send to Mars, but then you're dealing with one of the biggest reasons why there hasn't been a manned trip to Mars yet, and that is the farther into space you want to go, so let's say Mars, and let's say the the round or the, the one-way trip to get to Mars is, I want to say it's four months, um, you have to take supplies, you know, enough food for Four months there, however long you're on the planet, and four months back. So that's a lot of food, supplies, water, everything you need to take to Mars and back, which we have, or, you know, it's not like that's out of the uh, realm of possibility because the ISS, the space station that's in orbit right now, has gone, you know, a good amount of time without restock. I think it was almost a year so having enough supplies in one place to last you know six people however you know the nine months it would take to get to mars and back is not necessarily the issue the problem is with current spacecraft designs um like the dragon can the dragon go to mars yes would it be smart to send the dragon to mars no because there's not that much space on it Whereas you have the Starship, that's this massive, um, well, I mean, everyone's seen the, the Starship rocket, and uh, I want to see if, how big Starship is versus a submarine. To what's your guess, Chris? Um, compared to a submarine? Probably... I mean, I'm going to imagine it's probably close to maybe a little smaller than a sub. And that's what I'm... Because uh, I, I know the Starship itself is 50 meters, but the living space is 
far less. Thanks. And while you're looking at that, I was going to tell you, just because it sparked my memory, that uh, a couple episodes back I had talked about putting uh, tankers up in space on the way so you could potentially refuel. And apparently that's something that's being tossed around as a opportunity to refuel mid-flight to Mars. Well, and that's what the moon base is for, or the lunar gate. The problem is it's it's going off of, once again, the small spacecraft design, like the lunar landers and whatnot. Um, so submarines are about 150 meters long. And I would assume that they are... Because Starship is 9 meters. And a submarine is 42 feet, so that's what... Okay, so I should go back to my metal additive company. They're not making submarines like... Yeah, yeah, not... They're making submersibles, but... Uh, I, they're not making, you know, full-size... See, and that's where you kind of lost me, too, was when you said submarine... Excuse me. When they, you said submarines, I thought you were talking about full-on... You know, nuclear subs. I suppose it's possible, but... You would have to have a much bigger operation to make that happen. I apologize. I should have said submersibles rather than submarines. Yeah, that's what kind of threw me off because you're like, oh, submarines. I was like, that's that's kind of impressive that they're building an entire submarine with 3D printing. The submersible makes much more sense. Yes, that is correct. But that's still – well, to get back onto why I went on that long diatribe about Mars – was Starship has the capacity to hold... I mean, it's a third of the size of a submarine. And a submarine can be underwater for months without, you know, need to to surface or anything like that. And you have a fleet of Starships up in the air, or, you know, heading to Mars. It has the potential to carry a ton of cargo and people and everything to space, or to, to Mars. Well, <clears throat> it'll be, uh, I think that's probably the the least, well, it's not the least of their worries, but I would imagine when they decide to finally send a crewed mission up to Mars, they're going to have, you know, the rations figured out just like they do on the space station. And Well, that, and that's what kind of what I was going with was the Starship, I think, has an uh a livable area equivalent to that of the ISS right now. Well, I mean, it. we know it'll have more because it could potentially house 20 people. The ISS caps out at 10. I think at the most has ever been there at once. Right. And they have, you know, they're using freeze-dried meal ra ration packs like MRE style. So it's not like, you know, a meal is taking up a whole lot of space up there. Yeah, but if you figure, you know, one person, three meals a day, minus, you know, snacks and whatever, you're still looking at, for a four-month trip, five, oh, I can't math, 360-ish meals per person. Right. Now, granted, it's obviously going to get lighter the farther out you go. And that was only for four. So, I mean, for one trip to Mars, you would be looking at a thousand meals per person, roughly, because you want to have contingencies in case there um, there's issues or delays happen or whatever. Well, and one of the other stories I came across this week was that uh, they're doing a little research into space farming like on the spaceships uh one so that they could potentially get food but also because it's supposedly a morale booster well, so people wouldn't go stir crazy on a four-month trip in space now that's a, that's a good thing to bring up um another series i watched was have you seen anything about uh the antarctic base that's well obviously down in the south pole I have not. Uh, so it's 
you know, if you wanted to think of bleak, desolate landscapes, that would be, you know, one of the worst on the planet right now. But the the morale there is surprisingly good, and they equate it a lot to food. Because, well, being that it's in the South Pole, they only get shipments, I think, during the summer months there. And they have to order a year's worth of food. So, you know, most everything that they eat is off. But they, because it's the South Pole, you don't really have to worry about freezing stuff. You know, just leave the, the warehouse window open and everything in it will be frozen. But they they combat morale by giving, or by having good food. Well, and that's really, if you think about it, the only way you're going to have success on a long mission is people can't have food insecurity while they're flying to Mars. It's already going to be a, you know, stressful event. You can't have people wondering if they're going to have enough food to last them the whole trip. Yeah. Well, and and like you were saying with uh, space agriculture... I was going to say hydroponics, but I don't think hydroponics would work very well in zero G. Um, but having, you know, good frozen food, which I know is something NASA's worked really, really hard on because they've even had, um, was it Top Chef that did a uh, freeze dried astronaut challenge? A few interviews um, <clears throat> from astronauts, and supposedly they have a, uh, they think the food's pretty good. The only complaint, I think, uh, unanimously, is they just get tired of eating the same things over and over again. Well, I mean, like anyone would. You know, I, I know it's kind of a first world problem, but, and I, I should say, I meal prep quite a lot because I don't cook during the week. I only cook on the weekends. So I try and get all my cooking for the week done um, during the weekend. And it's just hard to eat the same thing more than, you know, a couple days in a row. Even if it's something good like baked spaghetti or something to that effect. Right. <clears throat> well, I think the, the biggest part's going to be you know, people who are volunteering to go to Mars for the first trip, they're going to be in it to win it. It's not like you just do that on a whim. You know, you know there's a chance you probably, well, more of, than of a certainty you're never coming back. So uh, That depends. Well, theoretically, at this juncture, where we're at now, it's probably a one-way trip. So, see, I don't. I think the first man trip will absolutely be Starship because they've already, I mean, SpaceX winning the contract to go to the moon was just kind of icing on the cake. They're going to Mars. That's, that's the whole reason they're building the Starship. And, um, you know, the lunar stop is you know, just extra funding for them. It's not anything that's going to deter from them going to Mars or not. So I think them sending one starship in the, potentially in the next Mars window to go to Mars, do some science, and then come back is very high and not out of the realm of possibility. Because you don't need a lot of fuel to get off Mars and heading back towards Earth. You need the fuel to stop when you get to Earth. But again, that's something that SpaceX could easily do, especially if they... if the orbital docking of starships is successful. Because they could theoretically send two starships to Mars, one with fuel, one with astronauts, and after they take off, use the, the last of the fuel on the one that was carrying the fuel to start heading back to Earth and just land the, the fuel tanker at the site where they want to start the colony. And then when, you know, the next window opens up and they launch a 100 or a 1,000 starships, 
you've got a landing zone and you've already got one tanker there that's or you know one sp starship there that's ready to be torn down and used for for whatever and that still amazes me that their goal is that lofty of getting to a thousand starships i mean it is but it isn't if you look at their their previous production like they only started building spaceships in a field a year and a half ago and i was going to say they built 15 but they skipped 3 so they built 12 and they've got another two being built. And if you look, they've already filed their FAA flight plan for their suborbital launch. Because they... Well, oh, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, at the rate it's moving, I'm just, you know, I'm more of a, I don't want to say skeptic than you are, but I'm just, you know pumping the brakes in my own brain saying man these guys we're we're just getting excited about putting a helicopter on mars and you know elon's trying to take a whole spaceship up there it's just a little bit uh a little too much for my brain to soak in at this point well and if you want to make it even worse if you look at if you look at their production rate they're making starships like every couple of weeks and that's only getting faster. I think their goal is to be making, you know, a starship a week to launch, which is the only reason they would need to do that would be for a massive fleet to send to Mars because their starship, their the entire starship platform, the booster, the the starship, it's all theoretically reusable so they don't need to have a massive fleet of rockets like falcon if you look at the falcon the falcon 9 was in heavy production for years that they just kept cranking out booster after booster after booster and that immediately slowed when they started sticking landings and they started being able to reuse boosters for customers flights that you know previously like nasa said no, you absolutely cannot use a previously flown booster. And then they landed their one for the 10th time last week. And they landed one today. And when you have stock that is reusable, you don't need a massive production facility or, you know, massive production line where you can crank out a new one every day unless you plan on not bringing those back. Because otherwise, you're just going to end up with a ton of starships sitting in a field somewhere collecting dirt waiting for their time to launch well i have no doubt that that's what's going on i mean elon is very good about doing what he kind of says he's going to do and he's got essentially unlimited funding at this point so why not well and that's the that's the other thing that's really unique about it is those starships you know, in the grand scheme of things, you could say, hey, they cost a million dollars to make. And, you know, to me and you and anyone else, if we were told, yeah, you can have a starship for a million dollars, that is a lot of freaking money. And while it is a lot of money, in the world of space, it's nothing. Because if you look at the previous, like the Atlases or the Saturns or, you know, the Shuttle, those cost hundreds of millions of dollars. And if you can sit there and crank out a new starship every week for a million dollars, and you can have a fleet of a hundred of them that cost you, you know, a hundred million dollars. It is revolutionary in the fact that he's essentially made a cheap, non-disposable rocket. Well, and it's it. <clears throat> there's just a lot of moving parts, you know, and getting, uh, you know, tankers and and refueling points and all the food and well, you know, I that agree. many people. But like you said, 
they already proved that they can make carbon dioxide uh not carbon dioxide oxygen on the the moon the moon mars uh, <laughs> and if i'm not mistaken it shouldn't be that far of a stretch to turn the carbon dioxide into oxygen and then turn it into methane which could theoretically be done on any planet with their atmosphere or any planet that has access to ice because methane is just and I, I i need to fact check myself here but methane is just oxygen and yeah ox or hydrogen and carbon carbon in carbon so it's ch4 so it's four hydrogen molecules around a, a carbon molecule carbon's everywhere uh, theoretically, isn't there ice on underneath of Mars? Oh, there's tons of ice. There's not. It's not even theoretical. They have pictures of it now. Um, they had the one lander that had water residue on it from the the morning dew. They have pictures of uh, the sand being blown off and ice being underneath the sand. There's obviously ice caps on Mars. So it's ice is there. I mean, there's ice on the moon, I think. And that's that's the thing is there's water and all of that everywhere. It's just a matter of getting to it and converting it. Which well, uh, I'm sorry I I cut you off because I just had the thought to bring up also that China had landed a, a rover of their own on uh, Mars yesterday evening. Yes. Uh, they are the second country with a, a rover on Mars now. Yeah, well, <laughs> I think so. Second second country, third rover overall. Yeah. And sorry about the cough there. I thought I had muted. Because um, the only other one, because I know Mars, or not Mars, Russia has made it to Venus. Tons of people have made it to the moon. But yeah, Mars is the the tricky one. It'll be uh, <clears throat> interesting to see because I think they're on the other side. If I saw the map correctly, they landed on the other side of Mars. Well, that yeah. And it'll be interesting to see what kind of feedback they get from from their rover see, compared to what we're seeing with ours. Yeah, I don't know what what scientific equipment they had on theirs but i don't think it's a is it a rover or is it a it's a full-blown rover. okay it's a lander with a rover attached got it that makes much more they, sense uh, <laughs> i was reading a story after they launched last night or after they landed and they said that uh, they immediately started unfolding their instruments once they landed. And they were comparing it to NASA, who took, you know, a whole day to do it. Well, and that's something you're going to see in a bureaucracy. Just It's just safety. Sure, you could unfold everything right out of the gate as soon as it lands and the dust settles. Or you can, you know, take your time, go step by step, and go down the checklist. Like, I know Russia has the record for the fastest rocket to... Not fastest rocket, but the fastest from launch to docking with the ISS. Something that, you know, we could absolutely do just as fast. It's just... Uh, we have all of our safety standards in place to make sure that nothing happens from launch to connection. My, uh, I need some, I have a question to give you, to pose to you, and I don't know if you know the answer, but I'm hoping that you can, uh, educate me a little bit. I can try. I was, think <laughs> I was thinking about Flying in space, most of these vehicles are going at, like, 17,000 miles an hour. Yes. That one is crazy, considering 
you know, how fast we travel on Earth. But my question is this. How is it possible to travel that fast? Is it because there's no gravity? Yes. So speed is relative. Um, like, theoretically, if you had a ship and you were on it and you had enough pro theoretical propulsion to slowly get yourself up to light speed, your body would not feel the effects of it. Um, because your body is only feeling, especially in space, your body is only feeling the effects of thrust. Because once you're weightless, you know, you're, you're traveling at the same speed of the, the ship. So you can float around, do whatever, even at light speed, and you wouldn't feel like you were going at light speed. Same is true with the space station. They're going, you know, 1,700 miles per hour. I don't, that sounds slow. Well, most of the satellites are pushing like 17,000. So, yeah, the ISS speed is 4.76 miles per second. And yeah. again, um, so not to sidebar, but to, to bring up a point, have you ever watched The Expanse? No. It's a show that sci-fi picked up, not sci-fi, Amazon picked up. I think sci-fi had it originally. Um, that deals with space as related to, you know, it's a show about space, um, but the physics in the, the show are amazingly accurate. And one of the things that the show deals with is high G maneuvers. So if we were to take the, the theoretical ship that could get to light speed, and if you put a rocket that could get you to light speed from zero to light speed in a minute, you would be goo at the back of the, the ship the Correct. second the engine's turned on. And that's why speed is – or not speed, but uh, Gs are important because if you have – if it's a slow burn, you're going to feel the effects, but you're not going to – it's not going to be that crushing – you know, like you're trying to take off or going, you know, into space. Whereas well, if you have uh, a high-powered burn, you, you're going to feel it a lot more. Because I don't know what the what the astronauts are feeling when they go up in a spaceship. But I have to imagine that's even pretty intense. Yeah, and that's, I mean, actually, you haven't been on a plane, have you? I have. Oh, I haven't. But I would assume it's the same thing. Like you feel takeoff, but once you're, you know, up at altitude and cruising at however, 100 miles per hour the plane goes, you're not feeling that effect because you're traveling at the same speed of the plane. Correct? Yes. So it's similar to that. You know, you're going to feel that initial thrust, you're going to feel the gravity changing, but you're not going to, once you get up to speed and you're coasting at the same speed, you're not going to feel like you're, you're going that fast. Hmm. I just was thinking about it. I saw, I saw one of the numbers that came out was like 17,000 miles an hour. And I said, that seems ridiculous to me. You should be a pilot goo at that speed. I mean, in gravity, you probably would be. Um, and that's not even the fastest. Yeah. Voyager's going 35,000 miles per hour. Ah, that's insane. And I'm assuming, why is everything so different? Yeah, they're both going about 35,000 miles per hour. And I don't even think that's the fastest, um, spacecraft either. Because I know and there's... I'm... Yeah, the Parker Space Probe. Um, go ahead. I'm looking for the speed. Oh, I was just saying, I know that uh, it's all relative to gravity, but I'm curious then to see what that would be, you know, be like on Mars, who has such a 
you know, less atmosphere compared to us. Uh, so the Parker Space Probe was 335,000 miles per hour. That's not Probably. a real number to me. <laughs> and that's only because it was it was using the sun's gravity. So it was flying towards the sun. And uh, obviously you're flying towards something that massive. You're going to get the gravity pull of the planet. So it's going to pull you in. So you're going to end up going way faster. Well, do you think that just once again, theoretically, if you were to, if you had enough fuel in your rocket, you could potentially go infinitely fast, correct? Sorry, what was that? Oh, I was saying that if you had enough, if you were in a rocket ship and you had an infinite amount of fuel that you could burn, you could potentially go infinitely fast. Does that make sense? Yeah, well, theoretically up to light speed, as our physics understand it. Um, and that's that's a question that gets posed, or I've seen posed before, is that once you get into, if you had enough fuel, and right now the best fuel would potentially be ion thrusters, and you had enough of it, and you could accelerate, you could eventually get to light speed. It would take forever, but you could do it. Well, I don't think I want to travel at light speed, so I'm going to go ahead and uh, just stick to what I know. You would become a time traveler. Yeah, well, I've I mean, already said I, I do that every uh, twice a year with the time change. That's enough for me. I, it wouldn't be the fun type of time traveling, but it would be time travel. Because you've heard that theory, right? Uh, which one are you speaking towards? Uh, the faster you're going relative to Earth. So if you took, if we had that spaceship that could get to light speed and you went one light year out and came one light year back, to you it would only be two years that you were gone. And I think the show or the movie, uh, it's not Gravity, what's the... What's the other space one that came out not too long ago? I don't watch a lot of movies. I'm not sure. Oh, this is going to bug me. But they dealt with it as well, whereas it would be two years for you for the travel, but, you know, 20 would pass on Earth. Because time is relative to where you are, and the faster you get to light speed, or the faster you get to to the speed of light, the slower time will pass for you. If that makes any sense. Yeah. It doesn't, yeah. It's kind of a hard concept to grasp because even technically, the, the astronauts that are on the ISS are traveling at a slower rate than in time than we are. I mean, it's not noticeably different because they're still, you know, relative to earth and relatively slow in the grand scheme of things but they're essentially traveling in time well, and that begs the other question too of how humans will adapt if we do go to mars how they will adapt because a mars year is definitely different than an earth year and everything we've kind of done is based off of what we know here on earth so things might change for the astronauts who would be going to Mars. I don't think time would be the biggest issue if you really wanted to to think about it like that. Gravity would definitely be an issue because it's only what? I think it's third. One Is third. It third. Yeah. So gravity would be the biggest difference. Is anyone, let's say you send the colony up and the, the first people that are born on Mars are going to end up adapting way differently than people on Earth. I mean, they could be walking sooner. They could be, you know... Well, you certainly wise need, Yeah, like, you wouldn't need the same strength to be able to move around. Well, and to do the everyday objects or tasks that we do. And that's, that's another topic that Expanse covers, is that um, because there's people living on Mars and Earth, but the Martians, um, Martians, 
the people who live on Mars have a much lower tolerance to gravity because if you're you know if you live on Mars your bones are just going to start developing differently because although there's gravity there's not a lot so anyone that would come from Mars to Earth would be like you know you're you're increasing the gravity you feel by threefold essentially well and that's what the astronauts on the ISS talk about is they come back you know they have a lot of things that they have to do while they're up there otherwise their bones essentially start to deteriorate because they kind of say oh well i don't have to support all the weight that i was supporting this whole time so i'm just gonna you know adapt to what i have and then the astronauts come back to earth and you know it takes them a day or two to go oh this is gravity i remember this but you know yeah everything's heavy again well and have you seen the videos of them uh, like on talk shows or whatever, and they go to explain something, and they're holding a pen up, and then they let go of the pen, thinking that it's gonna stay right there. Oh yes, <laughs> and and that's yeah. ISS is a little bit different because there is no gravity at all. So if people were to be born in space, it would be definitely a lot different than people born on Mars versus people born on Earth. Like, I, if I had to guess, I would think that babies born on Mars would... Well, no, I wouldn't say they would potentially walk faster because the babies would just be used to being in that low of gravity. Yep. Just and, like, could you imagine if, if, you, if we were in, on Titan where it's double the atmosphere, then... Uh... You would have some really strong people. <laughs> some some Dragon Ball Z Goku-esque training? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Somebody like you or me would probably fold in half. Well, I don't, I don't think so. Well, double gravity, it would be difficult, but I don't think it would necessarily be undoable. Undoable? Well... You know what I'm saying, though. Yeah. It's just, it would be, you would take the first step out and just be like, holy crap. Like the Futurama episode. <laughs> yes. Uh, but yeah, that's, it would definitely mean that people, like, let's say we start something on Titan. People born on Titan would have to very quickly adapt to that level of gravity, which would mean that when they came back to Earth, well, a good example would be uh, distance runners. There's a reason why the Olympic Training Committee has their training center in Colorado. It's because altitude. the altitude. There's less oxygen. There's less, you know, everything. So that when, you know, you're training athletes here and in the mountains, their bodies are getting used to working off less oxygen and working off, you know, I wouldn't say higher gravity because I think technically we're we're less gravity, but not significant. But yeah, and then when you go down to surface level, surface level, uh, what what's the word I'm looking for? Sea floor, sea level, sea level. That's it. Oh, uh, yeah. So <sighs> when you go down to sea level, and all of a sudden, you know, you have all this extra oxygen that your body just not used to it's able to perform a lot better than it would have done had you not trained in higher altitude like i imagine on titan my golf drive would be absolutely terrible i would feel 20 feet <laughs> yes <laughs> whereas on mars you know you'd be able to happy gilmore at halfway you know nailing those 700 uh, yard par fives well, yeah, because I drive like 350 here, so you figure I'm going to get at least seven, 800. That, you know, that would be, a, I wouldn't say a great reason to go to Mars, but it, it would be an interesting reason to go to Mars. Improve your golf game. <laughs> Why are you going here? I just want to drive a golf ball just to see how far it goes. It... There was someone that did it on the moon, and I'm spacing the name. 
Oh, it was arms. No, it wasn't maybe Armstrong. Not Armstrong. It was uh. uh... Ah, somebody did it on the moon. I can't yeah, think. Of Alan Shepard. Oh, Shepard. Yeah. <clears throat> Which you know, I I can only assume it went extremely far. Now, if the moon could get rid of my slice, that would be awesome. I would go play there all the time. I, I don't think there's a planet that could help you with that. Maybe Titan. Because then if you slice <laughs> it, it wouldn't, go, it wouldn't go as far. Yes, it would not have enough time to slice on Titan. So, we just spent about 40 minutes talking about space. <laughs> what, what, yeah. What was the other stuff yeah. we were going to talk about? Oh, I want to. We wanted to talk a little bit about that cyber hack that happened this week on the pipeline. Lead us into that. Well, you know, we probably won't. Uh, we we had planned to go kind of in depth and do a whole discussion on it, but uh, with Kirk having issues this evening, I still want to touch on it because it's topical at this moment, but. The Colonial Pipeline, which feeds the East Coast with a lot of their fuel, um, was hit by a ransom attack, cyber attack, and they were forced to shut down uh, for a couple days, which led to a lot of uh, panic buying of gasoline. Oh, and have you, so some of those pictures were just horrifying. Oh yeah, there was. They had to put out like a public service announcement saying, "Please stop putting gasoline in trash bags." Yeah, because correct me if I'm wrong, but gasoline's corrosive and will typically eat through a trash bag. Uh yeah, you know it'll stay in there for you know, like ten seconds before it eats right through it. Yeah, yeah, and so I mean that's why they have those red gallon jugs is because they're rated to hold gasoline, but people were just panicking because everybody was buying all the jugs. So they were like, okay, well, what's next? What do I put it in? Ah, oh, trash bag. Let's put it in that. I saw someone trying to put it into a laundry hamper. No. So, you know, I mean, I... not, not a closed one. A traditional laundry hamper meant to aerate <laughs> clothes. Well, <laughs> all right. Well, when shit goes sideways people lose their minds and they do stupid things but you know that it took a couple of days they finally got it back online uh i think they did end up paying some money and ransom to get control of their systems again well and that's and, that's what I, I i read a little bit about that and ransomware attacks have been on the rise significantly um just due to the fact that they're hard to stop once the the virus is in the system your two options are either to dismantle and rebuild everything or pay the ransom and upgrade your security and hope you don't get hit again and i would assume that's what they did was they paid the ransom and are going to go through and upgrade everything to not be hit by a similar attack well, and from what I can tell, they figured out they already figured out who was a you know who was responsible for it, and it it kind of led me into the thought of uh, there's a whole like FBI space or uh, cyber task force. They're like the dark web police, and they monitor this stuff so that they can figure out who did it and how to stop them. And uh, I was thinking about it in the respect of automation. You know, I'd kind of brought up at, at one point, I said, you know, is that going to be an issue if people are automating their whole work uh, space and you eventually have to download software to these robots, even if it's just once or twice, you do have to give them software updates and potentially cyber criminals could infiltrate you know, through those updates, if you didn't have a good enough security measure set up. Um, so do you think? Uh, yes and real... no. <laughs> because a lot of the the attacks that go through and happen 
are due to antiquated software or technology. So, for example, I'm sure the computers that are used where you work are not exactly the most up-to-date and reliable. Maybe, maybe not, but hard well, to say. That's why I was trying to keep it vague. Um, and that's just a factor of corporations, because if you have all these computers that, you know, if you won't you have a big corporate or a company, and you have all these computers to go through and rip out all of the ones that are running old or outdated software, especially on dedicated machinery, which is what I'm assuming happened, was a lot of um, old technology that still works runs on antiquated software. And to update that software to more modern versions requires a buttload of money. Like, there's still, and I would 100% guarantee there are still um, a lot of hospital equipment that runs on XP. Because it was designed for XP, it runs off of XP, and to get it upgraded to, you know, the latest version of Windows would cost more money than it's worth or just to replace the whole system. So they run this stuff off of old antiquated software, hoping that it doesn't get hacked. And it's usually separated from the net or separated from more critical structure or critical infrastructure. Um, but it's still a vulnerability in the system. Now, like you were saying with the robots or with automation, uh, I would assume that most most things that are automated aren't necessarily going to be network connected. And if they are network connected, there I would assume that there's going to be a huge push to get these auto or these robots that are automated onto their own intranetwork. So a network that talks to itself and talks to computers, but is completely isolated from the greater, you know, World Wide Web. And it's not connected to, you know, the physical internet, or there's a separation between the two. Well, I'm thinking, like, uh, look at self-driving. Let's, let's say that delivery vehicles were created and used. Uh, you're not going to be able to necessarily that's going to have to be connected to something and it, no. to me anytime there's something connected to something that's a vulnerability that someone can exploit yes and no like i said it's it's going to be connected but it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be connected to the greater world wide web i mean let uh, on it in Domino's case, I would assume they will have a satellite connection to corporate or to the store or whatever that monitors and deals with each vehicle that's out there and driving around. I don't think it's going to be directly like it would be very hard to hack into the vehicle itself versus hacking into the the greater overall company it just seems like all it would take was some somebody who puts a you know clicks on the wrong email and boom now you're you know downloading kamikaze delivery trucks everywhere yeah but once again those are going to be separated from you know you're not going to have someone in the the potentially in the the driver's seat opening up emails that system is going to be separate from uh the main like sure there is a possibility that you could potentially hack into the car or the self-driving car it's been proven before i can't remember who it might have been might have been mercedes that got hacked into 
but there was a running vulnerability where someone could hack into a running car and shut it off mid-driving. Right. And it, to me, it seems like people who, if there is a way to screw with something like that, someone's going to find a way to do it and, you know, cause potential chaos like they did with the pipeline on the East Coast. You know, there was a well, lot of lot of damage that went on there. I, well, here's a good example. So, oh, and I have to look this up to make sure I'm not speaking out my ass here. Uh, Teslas are arguably the most advanced uh, cars on the road. And yeah, so they have been hacked. I, I kind of figured they were, but it wasn't, it wasn't a traditional hack where, you know, you're sitting behind your keyboard typing frantically as, you know, windows pop up and down. Um, in this case, it was a drone flying around with a Wi-Fi dongle that happened to get in range of a Tesla and um, override some stuff, which has obviously already been patched out. So that's the other the other end of the spectrum is when you have these things that are constantly connected. Let's say Domino's delivery trucks. They're all connected. They're all, you know, talking to each other and whatnot. If it is discovered that there is a hack or there is a way to hack into it, it will be able to be immediately patched out. And that's why there are groups that work on this type of stuff. They're called White Hat if I'm not mistaken, where they look for vulnerabilities in software and report it to the software developers. Well, and that's just, it's just food for thought. You know, one of those things that I would think of is looking into going in, you know, as things start to become more automated, people tend to be, you know, sketchy and criminalistic. So well, you give them an opportunity to you know, fuck things up. That's what they're going to do. And, and it's there. A lot of these ransomware attackers kind of are going off the, the Robin hood MO of they're targeting rich corporations and not hospitals and the, the like, not to say the hospitals haven't been hacked because they have, but the ones that are getting hit with these ransomwares are usually corporations that have money. And... I believe, uh, as a matter of fact, I believe Centura up here in Denver got hacked uh, yesterday. Or the day before, they had to shut down like five branches because of a, a cyber attack. Well, and that's going to happen more and more. And like you said, hospitals are probably some of the worst when it comes to vulnerabilities because, like I said, there is a lot of antiquated equipment running and talking to the upgraded equipment. And it's the antiquated equipment that you can get into, or that is easier to get into, and there's a reason why it was abandoned. Because uh, let's take Windows, for example. Windows provides updates for Windows 10, you know, almost weekly, it seems like, with how often it bugs you to upgrade, or not upgrade, update. And... For them to feasibly do that for all past iterations of Windows is, you know, frankly, unrealistic. Now, and that's why they drop support, because no matter how many times they go in and fix bugs or fix stuff, people will always try and find a new way in. Now, on the newer versions, it's going to get harder and harder and harder, theoretically. But on the old versions because they've been around for so long and people have so, so much time to work and figure out that the security risks are just too great for companies running Windows XP or 7, because I think 7 lost support not too long ago, too. You remember my old computer? I'm well aware. Oh, yeah. The, the one that's definitely not the toaster. I was trying yes, to think I something am. else to say. 
I am digging my new computer. It is lightning fast. Much, much better than the one that I had. I would and hope it's so. Got a, and it's got a cool green glowing light on it, which, you know, added perk. Yeah, mine, mine glows green, too, but I built mine. Well, la-dee-da, Mr. Fancy over here built his. No, I'm kidding, but I don't have the brain space to build a computer. I'm sure it's not as hard as I think it is, but, you know. Uh, if you can put Legos together, you can put a computer together. It's... One step above a gorilla here, John. You got to remember that. <laughs> but I don't know where else I was going to go with that. I'm not sure, but I was going to say maybe we should uh, go ahead and cut this one short. I do still have a new baby, and well, with Kirk being Kirk being gone, the uh, you know, I think we did a pretty good job of rambling for an hour. And, uh, you know. Considering we hit an hour, yes, I would agree. Hey, we, we had some pretty good conversation. Uh, space seems to be our forte when it comes to being able to talk. So Sometimes. But we, you know, hopefully next week we'll be back with, uh, Kirk will be back as his own, you know, normal self. And we'll leave it with that. But uh, thank well, you for everybody. Hold on before you cut everyone off. Or cut oh, me off. <laughs> I was going to say, we do have some upcoming things that uh, we would like to share before we end tonight's episode. I uh, apologize. I forgot. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, no worries. Uh, me and my wife are going to be doing, we don't know if it's a podcast or if it will just be a, a short, hour-ish long stream during the week when we have time together. Um, we're still working on the details of that. It may start next week not a hundred percent certain but uh there's a good possibility uh the other thing is we are going to be making a movie chris included um and i don't know if if i feel up to it i am probably might start that tomorrow it's just been kind of a uh uh a, a tough week per se and uh, the big benefit of this movie is if I can work out the details and depending on what happens it's going to be an open sourced movie which means that uh, once it's done and finished and uploaded to our channel and like I said it, I do, I'm going to have to look deeper into this to see what other options are available because we're still kind of kind of noodling this idea a little bit but once it's done and finished the all the files everything will be released for anyone to go in mess around with or render out themselves or recut or do whatever they would like with it that's the current plan but it it can potentially change so what we're trying to do is make a movie that anyone who's listening and wants to go in and uh you know, make a movie off of our movie or change something, they'll have the ability to go in and do that. Yep. And that's when I came up with the idea, I was thinking, oh, this would be unique and fun because I am a very big proponent of open source software like Blender or Inkscape or, well, OpenOffice was, but then Apache Bottom. But I am a very big proponent of open source. Um, and especially since this will be the first movie that I will have ever created, I think it's fitting to put it out for the community to decide and do whatever they want with it. Um, to redub it, to fix audio, whatever they want to do. And then since it's open source, it'll be free to use once you've done what you wanted to do with it. And that's, I kind of love that aspect of it. But. Well. It seems like a daunting process to me, but, you know, I'm sure I'll be very happy with it once it's all put together. And it, it, it should be a fun experience, especially for me, since I've been wanting to do this for damn near a decade now. And I'm finally, finally got all the pieces in place, and I think I'm going to be able to start relatively soon. I'm still working on the script. Um, it's part of the reason why I haven't, I haven't done too much on the animation side is because I've been kind of 
heavily focused on that this week. Um, and I just think it'll be a very fun, interesting project, especially for our channel and for our community, because that was my whole intent to begin with, was to make a make a movie that the community can help with. So that'll be starting very soon as well. Like I said, possibly tomorrow, but I'm not holding my breath and I'm the one that's supposed to be doing it. So we'll just have to see how that one plays out. But I think once I do get started and do get it rolling, it's going to be, I'm going to be probably putting a lot of time into it and it will all be streamed here on our Twitch channel. Definitely something we're looking forward to seeing. But I'm guessing so, that, that was all I had, so. All right, well, I'm going to, you know, thank everybody for joining us tonight. John, um, Kirk couldn't be here, as we said earlier. So I did want to leave on a joke that I saw yesterday because it made me laugh. And without Kirk here, I figured I should try and inject one piece of comedy. So here it goes. Baby Roach. Dad, what happens if we get sprayed by raid? Papa Roach. Suffocation, no breathing. Oh. Oh. <laughs> that's, that's, no. Fairness <laughs> is not that bad, but. Uh. Yeah, you know, that's, hey, I thought it was funny. Maybe other people will too. <laughs> I, I do want to thank the Johnny D uh, for coming to our stream tonight. He's been here every week. It's good to see him coming around, and yeah, uh, looks like he's a subscriber. So, thanks for that. And we will have emotes and all that stuff uh, once I get it figured out. Um, what was the other thing I was just about to say? Uh, towards the end of our podcast, going forward, uh, we will be having the the chat dis interaction and everything after the podcast. And then be potentially before our game stream, but with Chris still dealing with uh, Baby Ben, it's, yeah. Hit and miss. Yeah. But hopefully everything starts going a little bit smoother and we, we start having a lot more more fun with this. I don't... I don't know where I'm going with that. I'm tired. I don't know either. <laughs> we should have just left on my joke. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks, everybody, for listening. John, I will talk to you shortly. Yep. And everybody, have a good evening. Yeah, have a good one.